Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So Until I Find You is the 11th novel by the great American novelist John Irving. And Until I Find You is the story of a kid named Jack Burns. Jack Burns' mother uh, is a tattoo artist. Jack Burns' father is a church organist. And in the first half of this book, uh, a five- or six-year-old Jack is carted all over Northern Europe to places like, like Oslo and Copenhagen as his mother tries to chase down his deadbeat father. The problem is, is that this book is used as a textbook for unreliable narrators. It's told through the lens of what Jack remembers being a five or six-year-old. In fact, the second half of the book is Jack as an adult returning to Oslo, returning to Copenhagen to only find out that everything that he remembered just wasn't true. Memory is a tricky thing, isn't it? Some of us vividly remember things that didn't quite happen the way that we vividly remember them. If you've ever had an argument with a loved one, you may have noticed that effect, that even two people who were involved in the same conversation can absolutely remember a conversation differently. And yet our lives so often are based on what we remember. The things that have happened to us, our own memories, our recollection of past events, drives the way that we live right now. That's just part of what it means to be human. Whether you're a Christian or not, our past and the way that we remember our past shapes how we live in this present moment. But what we remember and what we act on as the truth don't always line up. This is especially true when it comes to our fellowship with God. There are things that we know, that you and I know to be true about God. Memories we have of our relationship with him when it was sweet and pleasant, but something happens. The blur of our present circumstances blocks out those things. So we forget them. We omit to remember them. This morning, we're going to be reading Psalm 42 together. And Psalm 42 is a snapshot of our soul in the midst of hardship. It gives us a picture of what is going on inside of us as we try to cling to the truth of God when at the very same time we feel abandoned by God himself. It's an autopsy of a heart scrambling to make sense of God allowing us to go through pain and suffering. It's timely and it's beautiful. And I would ask that you would rise, that you would stand as I read it out loud. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
while they say, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad, glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If you grew up in the church, especially grew up in the church in youth group culture of the 90s, this first verse is probably quite familiar to you. In the 90s, there was a very popular song, and it, it well, I won't assault your ears by trying to give you the melody. But if you know it, I guarantee you know it, as the deer pants for the water. But the problem is, is that song has kind of a very peaceful, easy feeling. It gives you the sense of, of a deer that has come to this nice little stream of water and the deer is finally slaking his thirst. But, but that's not what's happening in this psalm. This psalm isn't the peaceful sort of Bambi coming up through the wilderness, finding a nice thing of water. This is a note of panic. This is a problem. The deer has not come to a nice little stream. The deer has come to where he's always found water at the stream before, except this time it's gone dry. As the deer who is looking to have his fill, looking to quench his thirst, comes to this place, there is no water. Look, we are Floridians. We are in the middle of August. We, we know that sense of panic. It happened to me this week. I, I met a friend downtown at Straub Park, and we had a nice walk around Straub Park at like 10 in the morning. And it was like 100 degrees, and it was like 95% humidity. And I had left my water bottle in the car. And towards the tail end of the conversation, I was trying to engage. I was trying to be thoughtful, trying to really be there. But in my brain, all I can think of is water bottles in the car. Water bottles in the car. Got to get to the car so I can get to the water bottle. I just need to drink some cold water. I became panicky. That's the image that the psalmist begins with. Not of a peaceful deer, but of a panicked one. I don't know where I'm going to find water. The psalmist desperately 
wants to engage with God. He can feel it in his bones. He wants to see God, but something is off. Something has gone wrong. He doesn't seem to be able to meet with God. In fact, the end of verse two is is almost a challenge to God. God, I am here. I want to be here. I want to be in relationship with you, but where are you at? I'm trying. I'm trying, but I'm not getting anything. I'm not finding any place where you are showing up. And what's interesting about this psalm is that this isn't a psalm of confession, There's no indication here that the psalmist has done something wrong that has somehow severed his relationship with God. This is a psalm of lament. And so the psalmist is going, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know where you are. You just seem distant and I'm in pain. I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been there where it just feels like my prayers bounce off of the ceiling, where it just feels like, God, I'm doing all the right things. God, I am trying. I'm making an effort here, and I'm getting nothing. I'm getting nothing. In fact, it's made worse. It's made worse because all of a sudden, it's not just that he feels alone. It's not just that he feels apart from God. But there are people who are, who are actively taunting him with the very same doubts. Where's your God? Where is your God now? As the psalmist feels distant from God, his enemies are taunting him with, where is your God now? The sons of Korah are expressing to us what it feels like to have your thirst quenched. They remember, they remember what has happened before but they can't quite seem to find it. In fact, it says that all the tears have been their food as they have cried day and night. They want a drink of water. They want a drink of water and all the sons of Korah are getting are their tears. Full of salt, never gonna quench anybody's thirst. This is a plea. This is desperation. God feels distance and enemies are amplifying that by their taunts. And so the psalmist tries to correct this. The psalmist tries to sort of refocus his heart. And he remembers the good old days, the days when things felt right, the days that he's longing for. This is the sons of Korah who we talked about last week uh, were the, the Levites who led the songs at the temple. These were the worship leaders of the Old Testament. So if there's anybody who knew what it was like to lead these processionals, especially in the three big festivals of the Old Testament around Passover and the Feast of Booths and the Day of Atonement, as they are sort of leading these crowds of people singing and dancing through the streets of Jerusalem, That's what he calls back to. That's what he remembers. He remembers the good old days. Why can't things be like they were back then? When our souls are tumbling in our chest, we often look back to a time when our faith was more vibrant than we are experiencing it as right now. Maybe for you, that was a a youth camp when you were a teenager. Or maybe it was when you first came to Christ. Or maybe it was when you settled into a a church that just seemed to fit. Or maybe you were in a college ministry that was really great. 
But most of us who are Christians have these touch points, these times when, these times when things were really good with us and God. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's, he's bringing that back to our mind. But those days aren't every day. Not every day can be a holiday. Even those of you who are retired know this to be true. As much as these, God, these sons of Korah would remember leading the people in these three weeks of praises, that was only three weeks out of the year. The other 49 weeks, everybody went home. Three weeks in Jerusalem, 49 weeks living down in the valley. Sowing, reaping, processing your grain, the day-to-day grind of life. Because here's the reality. Most of our lives are lived in the valley, not at Mount Zion. Most of our lives are lived in the day-to-day grind, not the experience of spiritual elation, not the experience of awe and wonder. That's just the way it is. Being a Christian does not exclude us from suffering. In fact, being a Christian invites suffering into our lives. And longing for the good old days is not enough to truly sustain us and to sustain our faith. And so the sons of Korah talk directly to their soul. They try to kind of talk to themselves, talk to their soul. And in the midst of suffering and doubt, they re-narrate their lives and encourage us to do the same. I mean, there's a a frankness, an honesty that the psalmist has with themselves. Why, Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God, because this is not the end. The psalmist roots himself in the message of the gospel, not just looking back at the good old days, not just remembering a time when our faith felt fresh, but rather attempts to tune his heart back to the truth of who God is and who we are and what he has done for us. Take hope. This is not the end. One day my soul won't feel like I'm wearing a compression sleeve around my heart. One day I won't feel like God is distant and aloof. He is my savior. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the good God who created me and chose to love me. The the psalmist tries to talk his heart through this. And then it works and everything in the psalmist's life goes back to being amazing. Because that's what happens with us, right? We just read the right Bible verse, tell our soul, believe that, and then our hearts believe that and we're able to process that information, and we move on with our lives, and we are better for it. No, that's not how it works, is it? The psalmist works towards this. The psalmist attempts this. But as anyone who has a soul, which is all of us knows, you can't just read a Bible verse. You can't just tell your heart the truth and everything go away. And so the writer returns to his problems. It's back at it. 
He tells us, he tells us, so why are you downcast within me? And then he says, my soul is downcast. Very. This is not great. He says it's cast down and discarded. It's like litter. He says, my soul is like litter on the side of the streets. But he's trying, he's trying to remember God, but God seems far off. In fact, he says, it's like I'm out in Jordan and Hermon, which most of us don't know the geography of Israel well enough to make any sense of that. But Mount Hermon was on the far northern border of Israel. It was where the Jordan began. And it's the farthest point geographically in Israel from Jerusalem. He's saying, I am as far away from God in Israel as I can be. He is physically distant from God's presence. At least that's how he feels. And then the psalmist begins to talk about water again. Except in the first part of the psalm, it was, water is scarce and I'm dying of thirst. And then in the second part of this psalm, he keeps the water metaphor going, but instead of it being uh, a lack of water, all of a sudden, there's too much. It's become a flood. The waves beat and crash over him. He says it's like his soul is getting pounded by the waves. Now, I grew up here on the west coast of Florida, and we don't have waves in the Gulf of Mexico not in any meaningful way. And so when I was a child and we vacationed in Daytona and I went into the Atlantic Ocean, I was like, oh, oh, that's a wave. That's for real. And then when I was an adult, I got the chance to, to go to the Pacific off the coast of Costa Rica. And I was like, oh, no, no, wait, no, no. That's a wave. That's for real. That's you get thrown off and held down for 20 or 30 seconds. You don't know which direction is up and you just have to wait and hope that it spits you back out at the end. That's what the psalmist says his soul feels like. That desperate moment where you're being tumbled head over heels, not knowing up from down, hoping that at some point this wave will end its power over you and you'll be able to pop back up and get enough breath before the next one hits you. That's his soul. That's what's going on inside of him. The psalmist tries to tell himself the gospel, tries to remind his heart of the truth of what he believes. And then he says, but it's like my soul is still in the washing machine. It's still getting tumbled around by too much water. And in the midst of that tumbling, we come to verse 8, which I'm going to be honest, almost seems out of place. It's a beautiful picture. It says, by the day the Lord commands his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. There it is again. We've, every time we open up Psalms, we keep coming across this idea of God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness. It's there again, just pointing that out. And that is, that is covenant faithfulness is commanded by day and at night. His song is with me. But this verse that tells us these beautiful truths about who God is, is wedged in between him saying that he's getting absolutely pummeled by the waves, and the next verse when he's going to say, God, why have you forgotten me? It seems out of place. As I studied this week, some people said, well, maybe the psalmist is being sarcastic, or he's kind of mocking, but that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to fit. 
And it's not like these waves are a good thing. In fact, in uh, Jonah's prayer, where Jonah is in the whale, he actually quotes from Psalm 42. These waves are a problem. Rather, what I think the psalmist is trying to show us here is real life. You and I know about God's covenant and faithful love to us. If I ask you, does God love you? All of you who are here who are Christians, I'm pretty sure would say, "Mm -hmm, yes, I do. And if I were even to ask you, and is his love contingent on your behavior? Most of you would say, "Mm -mm, no, no, it's grace. It's not contingent on my behavior. And yet, even though we know about God's steadfast love, how many times does our present moment conceal it from us? We can't see past the problem that is right in front of his eyes. He knows the truth, but his soul is still churning inside of him. That's why he says, God, why have you forgotten me? You're my rock. You're my foundation. But where are you at on this one? Why is it I keep lamenting and mourning? Why does it seem like my enemies just keep winning? The psalmist circles back to the same taunt that he said in the first part of the psalm. He circles back again to, they keep telling at me, telling me, where is your God? What's interesting about this psalm is it's very much not linear. It's not the way that we normally think. It doesn't have a a beginning, a middle, and an end. It keeps kind of going around in circles. He keeps coming back to, okay, I'll try to tell my soul the right thing. Okay, that's not working. And now they're taunting me. And now that makes it worse. And And he kind of is going in circles as he thinks through this. And what's beautiful about that, what's beautiful about the poetry that God has given to us through the sons of Korah here in Psalm 42 is that it describes exactly what it's like for you and I to be going through something like that. Because our brain just keeps kind of ticking and spinning. It keeps on going. We think, okay, no, I'm going to remind my heart of what is true in this moment. I'm going, to, I'm going to center myself around Christ. I'm going to remember the message of the gospel. I'm going to trust in him. And then an email comes in that sets our, our heart going again, sets our mind going again. And then we're right back in that anxious moment. We're right back in that washing machine. We're right back in the, where are you, God? I am dying of thirst. The psalmist, very way that he structures this poem shows our lives in uncertainty and pain. We lay out our case to God. We ask for help. We pray. We try to put things in perspective. And then the words of the enemies come crashing back into our mind, sending us tumbling again. So what does the psalmist do? He repeats back to himself again, Why are you at turmoil, O within me? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. He goes back to it. He goes back to telling himself the same thing. I'm going to be honest with you. This week, my soul has been in tumult. I've had stuff going on that I have no control over that has 
ailed me. I have had things going on in my soul that have caused my heart to ache. And so as I've had my Bible on my desk, every time I would sort of start spinning with this, I'd look down and I'd read verse 6 or verse 11 and the same thing. As I looked down, I'd read that. And it was like, okay, yes, I need to be doing this. I need to be doing this. But in some ways, we can begin to think that Christianity is just following a mantra. If I just repeat this nice verse of Psalm 4211 over and over again, maybe eventually I'll get it. But the story of the gospel is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than just that. Because as we read through Psalm 42, there is something more beautiful than a mantra in here because we begin to see that Jesus experienced this tumult just like we do. As we read through his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, Father, if it's your will to take this cup from me, please do, but nevertheless, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. And then what happens? Jesus comes back to that exact same prayer again. You can see Jesus wrestling, wrestling with what is about to happen. Jesus knows what it's like to know the truth and for our soul to still be tumbling within us. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Think about on the fact that on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 42 and he's saying forsaken, not forgotten, but it's the same idea here. He knows what it's like to feel that distance. He can sympathize with us when we feel forsaken and forgotten. We have a great high priest who knows our frailties who has lived in our frame so that even when our soul is cast down, even when our hearts are in turmoil, we can have hope, not in a mantra, but in the person of Jesus. A hope that one day the victory that was started with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus will be brought to completion. One day our salvation will be consummated. One day we will drink from the streams of living water that never run dry. One day we will drink the water of life from the crystal sea that goes out from the throne of God and never thirst again. We will drink from the sea that doesn't pulse with the chaotic energy that the psalmist describes. One day we won't have to remember the good old days, and we won't have to remember God because we will be in his very presence. One day, the taunts of the enemies will be silenced. And beloved, every breath that you take brings that day one moment closer. Every time you wake up, you are one day closer to that beautiful moment where we won't have to remember because we're in his presence. And that beautiful moment where the taunts of enemies will be silenced, that beautiful moment where we will never again thirst for God because he will be there and we will be with him and he will be our God and we will be his people together in his place. Beloved, I know that these are turbulent times,
but Resurrection Day approaches. Let's pray.